morning and welcome to the service. I invite you to join us as we praise our Lord together in song. Sunday of Lent, and I invite you to join in our Lent reading for this morning. I will read the leader parts, and you can join Audrey with the sections that say all. Hear, O God, when we call to you. Have mercy on us and answer us. In our vulnerability. 
Have mercy on us, O God. In our forgetfulness. Have mercy on us, O God. In our anxiety. Have mercy on us, O God. In our wrongdoing. Have mercy on us, O God. In our hard-heartedness. Have mercy on us, O God. In our blindness. Have mercy on us, O God. In your mercy, you rescue us from our enemies. In your mercy, you remove our transgressions from us. In your mercy, you made a way for us to be reconciled to you. In your mercy, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to heal our brokenness. Grant that in this season of Lent, our hearts may be devoted to you. That we may see your mercies new each day. Grant that we may be always ready to offer mercy to those in need of it. For mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen.
song now, or at least for many of you, it will be new. It's a simple melody with beautiful truths, and whenever you're comfortable, I invite you to join in. Jesus, strong and kind. Jesus said that 
invite you to stand if you are able, and we will sing Grace Greater Than Our Sin. reading this morning is taken from Colossians 1, 24 to 27. Colossians 1, 24 to 27. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. 
I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the children who are here this morning, and we pray your blessing on them as they go to Children's Church. May the truths they learn about you take root in their hearts and minds, and may, may they never forget how much you love them. Amen. The children are dismissed now to go to Children's Church. If you took a bulletin as you came in this morning, I invite you to take a look at that now. Um, next Sunday, you may have noticed in the bulletin that at 10.15, we are starting coffee time. So if you would like to come a little bit early, there will be coffee available. And um, we thought with the restrictions changing a little bit, that would give us opportunity to fellowship a little bit more. And so starting next Sunday at 10.15. Um, annual reports are due, so if you're the head of a committee, Carrie is waiting. Um, Tuesday is the deadline, so you can get those to her. Um, we have our regular events this week, ladies' Bible study on Monday, um, prayer meeting on Wednesday, youth on Wednesday at the church. So take note of those things if that's part of your regular schedule. I invite you now to bow with me in prayer. God, we come to you in the quietness of this morning, thankful that you are the one true God and that you are aware and in control of all things. You see the conflict going on in our world, and you also see the inner struggles that we have within ourselves, and you care deeply about each of these things. Nothing is too big or too small for you. We confess that often we let fears, worries, and distractions keep us from you. Thank you that in your great mercy you forgive us and promise that your mercies are new every morning. As we look at the world around us, we are saddened. The conflict between Russia and the Ukraine carries on, and we long for you to bring peace and resolution. Be with the many hurting people in those countries, Lord. Bring hope, we pray. Within our own community and families, we pray that our relationships would be filled with kindness and love and that, that others would see evidence of your work in our lives in the way that we relate and respond to others. We pray for Russell and Shannon, Noel and Mary, and ask that you be near them as they adjust to life as a family of four. May they settle into a rhythm and enjoy this extended time together. Thank you for our students, those in our local schools and those in post-secondary studies. Give them a love for learning and friendships that make the school days more enjoyable. We pray for Ariana, who's moving back in the next while, and ask that you would find someone to take her place at the house where she is living. God, you know what each of us has on our hearts and minds this morning, the concerns that we feel free to share with others, and those that we keep private. We ask that you would continue to work in each of these situations, bring healing, bring hope, and give us peace in the waiting. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Now I'd like to invite Rolf Cruz up to speak. Rolf and his wife Angela have served in, as missionaries in Africa for over 16 years. 
They currently live in Rosenort, and most recently, Rolf has accepted the position of Interim Director of Global Outreach for the EMC Conference. As most of you know, he's David's brother, and we are blessed to have him as family. Thanks for sharing with us this morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to worship with you and join our voices in worship to the Lord. It builds confidence and hope in us, doesn't it? Even while we bring glory to God. So I'm also grateful for the chance to bring a ministry to you this morning. We'll focus our attention for the next while on God's Word. And um, I also want us to see what God is doing in the world. We, we don't uh, see it all the time on the news, but we know God is at work and He's in charge. When you read your Bible, do things catch your attention? Things that sound unusual, things that are so wonderful, you just want to think about them for a whole day. For the next 20 minutes, I want to look at some of the things from Colossians chapter 1, these verses that were read, and um, just dig into three of the things that caught my attention, things that remind us about our Lord and how he wants us to follow him. And I'll be illustrating my points from mission experience. That's my natural go-to. Um, and I hope that'll help you as well to connect to what God is doing in the worldwide church. So you've turned to Colossians. I'll give a little bit of background about the book very briefly. While in prison in Rome, Paul wrote this letter to the believers in Colossae and Laodicea. There were two churches that were going to swap letters after they read each other's letters. And um, we've lost the one to Laodicea and we have this one left. And um, Paul was writing them to teach them about what it meant to be followers of Christ. He affirmed the good that he saw in them and uh, he wanted them to continue living a life worthy of the Lord. It seems that they might have also been confronted with false teachings about Jesus. And so he spent some time in chapter 1 um, explaining or focusing on the details of who Jesus is. It says he's the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He was trying to emphasize Christ's divinity, but also his humanity, right? He suffered in the body. And so those were, those were his... Um, he was probably um, confronting some false teaching where people said different things about Jesus and that he wasn't maybe fully man or he wasn't fully God. And then at the end of chapter 1, in those verses, we read these words. I'll read them again in the New Living Translation and, uh, because that was where I was reading when these, these questions jumped out at me, these, uh, these observations. So... Verse 24, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So the first thing that caught my eye as I was reading was this line 
the secret that was kept, or the, the kept secret that uh, lasted for centuries and generations. And I, want, I wondered, why would God keep a secret? Why would his good news be kept secret for so long? From biblical history, we see that God speaks. God doesn't keep his message secret. He speaks with intelligible language, and he speaks with acts of power, right? And we see that throughout the Old Testament. God is at work, and God is speaking. He sent people to preach, and so his word is, is always exposed. It's always revealed. Um, many times the prophets were even sent to other nations, not just Israel. And by saying that, we're reminded that as followers, as believers, we need the message as much as anyone, right? But he did send his, his messengers outside as well. You remember Jonah? And I believe Nahum was also a, a preacher who preached outside of Israel. In 2019, I had the opportunity to serve the church that gathered on Kuluva Mountain in Uganda. Now, some of you are familiar, too, with the MX3 uh, missions team from SBC, and they were there at the same time and were able to serve in this church. And I'll just explain a bit. I'll describe this church a bit to you. Kuluva Mountain is a, is a kind of a bare-topped, rounded mountain, more like a hill, I guess, in some ways. Um, and there were outcroppings of rock on top and a few scattered trees. Now, the people who lived on Kuluva... They lived a little further down the slopes, but they would come up to the top and um, with metal instruments that they'd made. I couldn't have called anything a hammer, properly a hammer, because I didn't, I didn't see even one hammer. But they used their, their implements to break off chunks of rock and then smash them down to gravel-sized pieces um, for use in uh, concrete as aggregate and they would send out the word as soon as they had a, a pile big enough to sell, and then the contractors would come up there and, and buy it. So they had a very hard um, way of making money, and very little money at that. But um, the gospel had reached these people, and they were enthusiastically embracing it. Uh, Billy and Tony were the evangelists who took the word to them, and uh, these people began to gather to study and, and pray. And so they invited us to join their study. So we were looking at the Gospel of Mark together. And uh, we hadn't gotten very far into the Gospel, and there had been these references to secrecy or silence. And uh, Michael, one of the men on Kuluva Mountain there, he spoke up and he asked, why? Why would Jesus not want people to know who he was? And it was my um, role at that time to, to facilitate the, the Bible study, and it was a discovery Bible study. So if you're familiar with that, you, you ask some questions and you, you get people to, to dig for the answers themselves. But you don't just tell them everything that, uh, that you discovered on the matter. So we continued. I told them, let's keep reading and you'll, you'll find the answer. So we did. And um, sure enough, Jesus does explain why he didn't want everybody to know who he was right away. Because he wanted to go and preach in all of the places uh, around Israel. And um, the crowds were so dense after a while that they prevented him moving around. Of course, they were hearing, and so that, 
that was what he was called for. But he wanted to reach others, right? He said, I want to go to the other towns as well. And so that's also something instructive for us about uh, the good news. It's not just to be kept within our communities. Um, Jesus also took his disciples away for private instruction, and he didn't need interruptions at those times. So the mystery was solved. The secret was, was revealed or unveiled. And this helped me to understand uh, what is meant by, by secrecy here in these verses in Colossians. Um, some of your Bibles render the, the word mystery, the mystery that was kept hidden for generations. Um, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, um, I'll read it here. Paul, Paul actually has this theme of mystery quite frequently in these epistles. Um, if you turn to Ephesians 3, verse 6, he just kind of, he sums it up really well there. And he says it this way, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So you have this, this picture of how God is actually trying to bring all the nations into the good things that he has. And into the church. They become the church. God had helped Paul realize that the message of reconciliation was for citizens of non-Jewish cities as well. So the city of Colossae, for example. Likewise, those who first preached to the people on Kulava Mountain were from another culture. They were from another community, but they crossed over. They went to share the good news with those marginalized people up on the mountain. And it was a delight for me to meet with these believers and help them discover the riches of Christ. To discover the riches of, of God's wonders, it, it requires that God reveal them to us. This is, a, this is the thing about the scriptures. They are revelation, right? It's not something that we can discover in our own effort. But God does reveal his riches as we seek. So he reveals that, the, the mystery to seekers. But it's not on our own strength or on our own steam that we get there. Okay, another thing that I questioned when reading here uh, is verse 25. If you look there, you see that God had given Paul the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message. And as I read the passage, I reflected on what he could have meant by this entire message. The whole message. Did that mean he had to know the Bible from cover to cover before he could proclaim it? Now, I guess Paul probably knew good, a good chunk of the Bible. But as I reflected on this, I was reminded of the men and women of Darfur. Darfur is in western Sudan. And the people we first met from Darfur trekked all the way across Sudan to to escape war, and they landed up in Ethiopia in the same refugee camp where we were living at the time, and uh, very soon after, they found out that there were Christians there, and so they were curious. They wanted to, to have some questions answered, and uh, we began to meet with some of them and discuss their questions. Now, I should mention that the Darfur people are, are Muslim. That is, that is the, the religion of North Sudan, or we just call it Sudan. Um, 
We always used to call it North and South because we worked with Southerners, but now it's, it's been officially divided. And, uh, and Islam is still very common in Sudan. But um, these men, they were mostly men, but there were some women as well. And Angela and I um, were able to study the word with them, which was very exciting. Now, they came as Muslims. They came with just the knowledge they had from the Quran about Jesus. And um, that does not paint an accurate picture of him. When uh, Muhammad referred to Jesus, however, he, he called him Yesu al-Masih, which is a title that means Jesus the Messiah. So everywhere he wrote Jesus' name, it, it was never a name by itself. It was a name with a title. Yesu al-Masih or Yesu ibn al-Maryam, Jesus the son of Mary. So it's kind of odd that when he includes that, he goes on to teach that Jesus never saved anybody, that Jesus didn't even die on the cross. So he had, it's a very skewed picture, but this was all that these Darfur people had to go on. And yet they knew about Jesus, and so they were very interested to know more, and especially what the Bible would say about him. And we had begun a, a gospel study with them and didn't even, we had barely finished, and they said, yeah, we believe. We want to follow Jesus. And pretty soon they were telling everybody. And um, as you can imagine, this did not go over very well in their Muslim community. They were not this, this was not a welcome message. But something had changed inside them, and they couldn't keep quiet. They had to express it. So they went very quickly from belief to baptism to proclamation. The foundation of the message which Paul proclaimed was Jesus Christ crucified and raised to life. So Jesus is the central figure of the good news. He is the one we share. He is the one who offers the way back to God for those who have fallen away. He is the way, the truth, and the life for people who have never known the way. And while the main teaching is found in the Bible, and we can't get to know God better unless we get to know the Bible better, the person who shares the message also somehow becomes part of the message, right? Our testimony of transformation is what we then also share. So we understand that the riches and glory of Christ as we share the things that we are learning in the Bible. That's how we begin to understand them. There's a verse in, in Philemon just a few pages over in your Bible. Just flip there quick, Philemon verse 6. And uh, it's a nice short book. You don't need a chapter reference, just verse 6. In Sudan, they, they call the book Philemon. But we say Philemon. So, Verse 6 says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. So that. I mean, we can understand as much as we can understand by reading the Bible, but we, we get into it so much more. We understand it so much more when we share it. 
And that was God's intention. So to review, the secret is that God is inviting people from every nation to be part of his church. This is the secret that God reveals when we search. And by obeying the whole message, um, or when we obey the whole message, this includes belief as well as heart transformation, which we then share as well. We share our story with people about how Christ changed us. Okay, the third thing that I wondered about, and um, maybe you have as well, when you read verse 24, you wondered why the suffering? Colossians 1 verse 24. It says there, I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body. And it's a common enough thing for people to suffer. Everyone has suffered physically in some way. And, um, and yet here, Paul says, I'm glad when I suffer. It seems extreme, doesn't it? Let's look at it from the perspective of who's writing. And uh, Paul, who's also the, the author of Romans, says in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, He says that I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. This is a very passionate, heartfelt response. It says there that Paul carried a burden um, for his people that resulted in great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. He could see the people of Israel not accepting the message. And it was so painful for him to see that that he, he wished that he could, he could give them faith by sacrificing his own. So it was a passionate response, but it was a burden that was clearly in Paul. Suffering physically is tough, but mental and emotional suffering is legitimate suffering as well, isn't it? And it can actually be harder to bear than, than physical suffering. Paul had that burden for the people of Colossae. He had taught them about Jesus. He was praying for them. And he was urging them to continue following Christ. But he knew that they were inexperienced in the Christian life and that they had so much more to learn. He also knew that he wasn't going to be around to coach them and help them. So that's why the letters he wrote were so important. They were a support for them. And uh, they are to us as well. We're thankful that he wrote. Has the Lord given you a burden for someone's salvation? As you think about that person or those people, is there some amount of suffering you would be willing to go through for them if that could help them to believe? If there is, then it's a sign that you are participating with Christ. Missions is really just about making that burden for people a way of life so that people who've never heard or whole communities who've never heard can hear about salvation through Jesus Christ. So as, as was mentioned, I've just taken on a new role. I've been um, at it for two months with the EMC conference, and it's a privilege in my role to get all the prayer letters of all EMC missionaries. We have administered missionaries 
who uh, there are seven of the, seven units, either singles or couples, working in three Latin American countries, and we're hoping to open a, a fourth country of Spain. And um, there are also dozens of other missionaries, associate missionaries, who who work in dozens of other countries. And it's been a privilege to read the work that they do, read about the work, and, um, and just hear what God is doing. Now, their work is not easy, um, but it is rewarding because it brings people's gifting and their burden together with God's timing. And it produces really great results. So, Pray that God would bring those three things together for you so that you too could reach the lost. Paul had a burden and a gifting that came together with God's timing and caused him to produce a lot of fruit. And this verse, verse 24, it also caused him a lot of suffering. That is a gift of its own, but it's not often seen that way as a gift, is it? We would rather squeak through without, uh, without getting touched by suffering, but that's not the, the lot that we have. Not as humans, definitely not as Christians, because we've just decided to follow one who gives us an example of suffering. Right? In First Peter, we're reminded that Jesus left us an example to follow, an example of suffering. And there it says that he entrusted his case to God, who always judges justly. So when we suffer, we, we often do wonder of, of the justice in it, right? When we're insulted or, or mistreated. And, uh, and none of us had, or have, I'm sure, had the same experiences that Paul had. He had been imprisoned. He had been beaten. He had been tried and convicted. Very um, severe kinds of persecution and suffering. But he followed Christ's example, and Christ entrusted his case to God, who always judges justly. The believers on Kulova Mountain in Uganda made their living with difficulty, and in addition to this, when, they, when it became known that they were Christians, their, their neighbors mistreated them. They ridiculed them. They intimidated them to make them come back to the former religion or ways of life. Likewise, when the believers from Darfur declared their allegiance to Christ, their community rejected them. They unleashed violence on them and chased them away from their homes. So this actually got so severe that the, um, the Ethiopian authorities put these people in prison for their own safety, for their own protection. And interestingly, what God did for them in prison was to give them a time of peace and security. And it was more like a ministry training school than, than prison because they could read their Bibles together and pray and support each other and, and keep going in their faith, not get discouraged. So God had a real way of working in that situation. So we may wonder how Paul can say that he is glad when he suffers. But he could observe and see the seeds that he planted producing fruit and growing. And the believers in Colossae were, were the fruit of his work. His work had not been in vain. 
Not only that, but through what he suffered, he knew that he was participating in Christ's life. You remember when Paul was on his, uh, his first mission, the bad mission, to destroy the church? He was on his way to, to a town called Damascus, and it was his first meeting with Jesus. And Jesus appeared to him. He shone a really bright light, which is a very merciful way of treating an enemy. But Paul, he called him. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Did he say that? That's what Paul was doing, but that's not really what was going on. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And so the suffering of God's people is actually on Christ every time. When we suffer, we participate with Christ. And I think that should be some comfort to us. Let me conclude with uh, verse 27. We catch a glimpse of the secret that, Paul, that allowed Paul and the believers that I've mentioned, those from Uganda and from Sudan, it allowed them to suffer with a sense of joy. Because, as it says, the secret is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, how people with hope behave that is different than people without hope, is that their eyes are on God. People with hope fix their eyes on what God is doing in the world. And they get on board with that. They get on board with what God is doing. Christ in you. This is the reality. This allows us to serve God with a sense that we're on time. It's not too late. We have something to offer. And that God can do greater things through us than we can actually imagine. This secret has been communicated clearly. Christ lives in those who believe. That's already the reality. So I don't know what the people were telling the Colossians, but they might have been challenged to think that there was something else, some kind of secret knowledge. So Paul spelled it out very clearly. This is who Christ is. This is what he did for you. Faith in him makes you his people. And that's the same for us. There is no added special information that we missed. When we believe, we belong to Christ. We are united with him. So what additional gift could there be, right? We have Christ in us. But apparently, it says right in the second half of that verse, there will be greater things. It says there that the gospel is a hope of glory, a hope of a future with God. And that assurance is what gives us hope. When Jesus returns, and he will, there will be more revealed than we know now. But for now, we have the knowledge that God is calling people from every language and nation to belong to him, to be part of his church. He's called his people to share that message, to expose that secret, that Christ is that person who can do it. He can unite all people. 
And then when those who hear the, the message believe it, their lives are transformed. And they, in turn, begin to point other people to God. And that is a, that is a very encouraging reminder. And as I think of these people that I shared with you this morning, they continue to follow the Lord, and they continue to be persecuted. And so you can pray for them, those of Darfur and those in Uganda. They have with the hope that they now have, they have a new perspective on suffering. And they continue to endure it as those who share in Christ's sufferings. And they can even have joy in it because he's given them a new heart. And so I want to encourage you with those words. And uh, yeah, let me close with prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for calling us. You called us out of darkness into your wonderful light. And you've called us to live and uh, follow you and to grow in our knowledge of you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we do, we would produce fruit. Fruit that you've predestined us to, to, do, to bear. Um, you've given us works to do that were prepared from the creation of the world. And so, as we set out to do it, Lord, we don't have any strength but yours. And uh, the gifts and the, the little strength that we have. But we thank you, Jesus, that you live in us. And that this is, this is more than just a, a teaching. This is your very real presence. And so I want to praise you and thank you today. Thank you for your presence in, in each of our lives. I pray your blessing on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our communion ceremony is a way of expressing our union with Christ. Let me take you back to the scene of what we call the Last Supper. Jesus invited his disciples to participate in his work, and he told them that they were to eat the bread and drink the wine. By doing that, they were joining themselves to him. And by doing that, they were participating in his life. So when we eat the bread and drink the juice, we are also expressing our union with Jesus. We remember that we are alive in him, that we are connected to all other Christians as well. And as you will soon hear from the scripture, this ceremony expresses the truths that Jesus' death paid for our forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins. And it also reminds us that Jesus is returning. Our belief and practice as a congregation is that any Christian can participate in eating the bread and drinking the grape juice. You don't have, you don't have to be a member specifically of this church to do that. For children, we leave the choice up to the parents. And as Tammy said before, if you didn't pick up your set of wafer and juice when you came in, but you want to participate, you can feel free to get one. Or our ushers are also ready to hand them out if you just... Put up your hand. They have very clean hands, and they'll just hand it to you in a basket, so all good. So this scripture is a combination of Matthew 26 and 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body.
Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul also writes that we are to examine ourselves before we participate. So let's bow our heads and I'll lead you through a few statements of examination. Recognize that this represents the body and blood of Jesus. Acknowledge that it is for Christians. Appreciate that it reminds you of the price that was paid for your sins to be forgiven. Knowing that you have been forgiven, you must also forgive others. So if you think of someone you need to forgive, or someone you need to make peace with, follow up on that after the service. So I invite you to get ready physically now by, by peeling off that very top film so you can get at the bread. And let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for unifying us in yourself, like the many grains of wheat becoming one loaf. Thank you for allowing your body to be broken, to make us whole. Amen. Let us eat together. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Open up the next layer, and let us pray. Thank you, Jesus, for purchasing our clean record by giving your blood. Thank you for allowing yourself to be cut so we could be healed. Amen. Let's drink together. So kind it was of Jesus to make something so physical and accessible and together to remember those amazing truths. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.